Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, bonds. And we will, I will cover qualitative and the math, but only the qualitative part about uh, bonds, not the math problems, will be on your midterm exam. We also have a quiz on Wednesday, and that will also be only on the qualitative part of the bonds chapter. And then I'll, after the midterm exam, quiz and final will have the math part of bonds on them. So you don't need to panic too much on that. One thing about this chapter, the bonds chapter, is that a long time ago these math calculations were really tedious. And the calculator, if you use a T, about any calculator, but I use the TI-83 Plus for showing you in class, it's really not hard at all. You just have to remember what goes in what slots in the TVM solver. Excel does this too, but it is a little bit more tedious than the calculator. Uh, it's just that's the way Excel seems to be with this. It all ha asks for all these things in specific formats, and you'll see what I mean by that. As a matter of fact, I've even put up a template for you, a, a little stupid Excel template for you to be able to do bond calculations. You either find the price of a bond or you find the yield on a bond. And they're both pretty easy to do in your uh, TI-83 uh, apps, but in Excel, the formula just drove me crazy for a while. I was trying to see if it could do something, and it, apparently it wants things only its very specific way. I'll get into that in a little while. Probably on Wednesday, I'll show you how to use the Excel to count, do the calculations. But for the time being, though, this is a lot of this is lecture about the, how bonds work, what they are, and all that. But before we do that, a quick look at the numbers just to get you excited uh, about your prospects for becoming rich. The, the markets are bullish, but they had a surge in the early morning, as you can see, and then they kind of tailed back off once uh, the, the excitement had passed for the day. But as you can see, typical of, of, of a, a day on the street, Dow is up a little bit, uh, maybe a quarter of a percent. S&P 500 is up more, a third of a percent. And then, of course, the NASDAQ will be the one that is up the most, usually, at about 0.83%. Just a typical day. It's not a real bullish day, but at least it's not a bearish day. We got creamed last week, uh, later in the week, because of the Fed re reasserting its intentions to keep interest rates going up to thwart the inflation uh, that's in the economy and the expectation of inflation. So there's that. On, uh, but uh, crude is just down there. It's parked in a 70, it's about 75. 
The real question is, what is going on with the price of gas? There is now plenty of uh, distillates, diesel, jet fuel, and all that coming through, and yet the price of gasoline at the pump is staying abnormally high. So what's going on? Well, if you're more of a cynic, you would say, well, the oil prices fell, and the oil companies certainly don't want their profits being cut, so they're just going to keep the, uh, make it difficult for the price at the retail level to go down until they kept making profits, for, uh, big profits for a while. That would be if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, and I'm not saying that's correct, but I'm also saying that's not correct. Now, interestingly enough, gold had a kind of a surge today. For what reason, I can't tell you. The gold bugs were excited. Money went into the markets, not a lot. It was a thin trading day. And money went into gold. Now, if we go over here and look at the bonds, which is, well, notice silver was actually down for the day. So if you've got gold going up, but metals in general aren't, that's probably just the uh, gold crackpots getting something new going about the end of the world. So I can't worry too much about that. But now the 10-year bond, the yield is down, so the price is up. We're going to do that today. Uh, why that is, mathematically. So, but if the yields are down, the price is up, which means that there is buying of bonds. So it's not spectacular, but there's some bond buying. There's buying of equities, and there's buying of bonds. So there's money that's just coming off the sidelines. It's not a lot. Look back here real quick. Look at the S&P 500 volume for the day. We're, we're nearing the end of the trading day here. And on a typical day over the last year, it's been 4.1 billion shares. Today, it's with a few, only an hour or so left, it's only 1.4, 1.3 billion. So it's, there's, the, there's not great excitement. You don't see vast wads of cash flowing into investments right now. So it's just uh, the, still the balance is towards bullish sentiment. But interestingly enough, now going over here, Tokyo had a down at the opening, which would have been last night. And then it crawled back. It tried to go back to break even and never did get there. And then it just sort of parked for the rest of the day at a very meaningless 11% down from the beginning of the day. But London started on a real hard note up in the pre, and then the, whatever that news was, there wasn't any other news to really move the market. So it just kind of floated for the whole day at about three quarters of a percent up from the beginning. Hard to say what's going on over on the other sides of the world. But for us, it's a day, it's a decent day. Keep in mind, though, that there is a lot of worry about a recession. And I showed you last week, our classic way of seeing a recession coming is that yield curve. And that yield curve is just screaming recession. We don't see it in the numbers, though, and that's just driving us crazy. Why, you know, you would think that the stock market would just go to hell. And it does for a few days, and then it just bounces right back like the bluebird of happiness has been singing to it or something. Hard to say what's going on there, but, you know, there's that. Uh, well, oh, I was going to show you something interesting. Earn I, I think I showed this to you last Wednesday. 
earnings, this is earnings season. And I had shown you a stock that has been brutally punished, AMC. And its earnings come out tomorrow. Look at that. <laughs> Buy on the rumor. Apparently, the rumor is that AMC is going to beat the hell out of its earnings. So there's the earnings that it's estimating, its earnings estimate. Its earnings, it's estimating are there. And right now, the rumors are that it is going to blow those earnings, that estimate, away. And that's why... You see, buying on the rumor. I mean, that's just spectacularly up. 20 and a quarter percent percent up on a single day. Yeah, I sure wish I had bought on those rumors, but there you are. Uh, in the world where I trade, which is called options, uh, if I had put $1,000 into that, I would probably have made close to $8,000 today just on one day so but of course I could also have lost my shirt too so there's that part of it but anyway enough of that let me kill this off here uh, and I'm going to get down to the topic of bonds and this is words and terms mostly and some concepts right quickly because I, I mean if I can't ask you math on the exam then I'm definitely going to focus on this terminology that I'm doing <sighs> give me a second to get yourselves put together for this it's the terminology and a lot of this you have heard some parts of it or you might be vaguely familiar with it but they have very specific meanings in this world first of all bonds represent debt obligations if you issue sell to me a bond for 10 million dollars that means that you have borrowed 10 million dollars from me the bond is the legal representation of that debt we have made an agreement now that works just like stock you don't borrow directly from lenders exactly you go to an investment banker you say to me I should like to raise 50 million dollars in debt and so as an investment banker I advise you on structuring the debt how long it will take you to pay it off, what interest rate you will pay on it, and a lot of other parts of it too. Are you going to collateralize this debt or are you going to have it uncollateralized? Things like that. Once and then, I am the investment bank, I will create a syndicate that will lend you the money and then I will take those bonds and I will the syndicate will then sell those bonds to very large investors investors who want something that is relatively safe in almost all all considerations and then the investors will become the lenders because when you pay them interest when you pay interest you will pay it to those people who bear who are the bearers of the debt paper and 
when the time comes, here's the interesting part. Consumer debt, the payments that you make every month, they service the debt, they pay the interest. Service means paying the interest. But they also, those payments, some of it goes to amortize the balance, the loan. So by the end, you don't owe anything. The last payment, you don't owe anything. Corporate and government debt does not work that way. All through that 30-year life, all you're going to do is pay me my interest checks. You're servicing the debt. That's all you're doing. For the entire life of the loan, you're servicing it. And then at the end, you'll pay me one last interest check, and you'll pay me back the face value, the whole $10 million or whatever it was, all at once. That's very different from consumer debt, because at the end, the company still owes what it borrowed. All it was doing was keeping that even, paying the opportunity cost of the lenders foregoing the funds, but they were not paying back the funds themselves that were borrowed. That happens at the very end. That's what we call the face value, what was borrowed. You'll hear me use the term face. Now, traditionally, and in our math, we work in units of 1,000. So we always, in our calculators, put in 1,000 for the face value. FV on the TVM solver. Now, an odd thing about debt is that it generally I've said, I've said this really early in the course, and I'll repeat it now. The debt market is 10 times the size of the stock market. 10 times the size of the stock market. And yet, you don't hear anything on the news. I never pull up a screen, well, let's look at the bond market today. <laughs> Why is that? Because the bond market is not exciting. Bonds have an anchor of $1,000. You'll get $1,000 at the end. So anything that happens to that bond price along the way is going to be anchored on 1000 at the end. The price may go up above 1000 some. That's a premium to par. It may go down a little below 1000 That'd be a discount to par. But it's always in that area there around a thousand, unless the, unless the company's in real trouble. <clears throat> but that's the thing. It's not exciting. Stocks, they can go to hell or they can go to heaven. They can go anywhere, and so that's exciting. And that's just the way we are with uh, as traders, as professionals, as journalists, we go where the excitement is. We go where there's danger and, and possible fortunes, not to the bond market. Well, what about this 10 times? Who in the heck is doing this? It's the lenders, the ultimate lenders, are all of these companies and people and trust funds and pension funds that don't want to put their money at a lot of risk. The bondholders, the debt holders, have the prior claim to the cash flows. So they, they are more assured of getting their money. 
all, <coughs> all other things being equal, the bondholders are in a less risky position than the stockholders are. If a company goes belly up, the stockholders are going to get nothing. They're going to get nothing at all. The bondholders are going to liquidate that company and take what's theirs. That's how it works. But back to the main thing. Um, an odd thing is that prices of bonds, they normally don't fluctuate much away from a thousand. If it's if it's a thousand dollars, that's par value. So if a bond goes to a thousand forty, we'd say the bond is selling at a premium to par. If the bond slips to let's say nine hundred eighty dollars, we would say the bond is selling at a discount to par. That is all driven by the prevailing interest rate environment that whipsaws around, and the yield is a measure against the coupon. And I'll talk about that in a little while, though. Don't worry about that yet. Now, what was I going to say here? I don't want to dive into the uh, technicalities as much right away, but a couple of things uh, to keep in mind. That both governments and corporations issue debt, borrow money. Corporations issue it because they want to use debt instead of selling stock. They don't want to sell ownership, they want to sell a temporary relationship. Think of debt as uh, your significant, debt is someone you met on Tinder. Equity is when you've made that terrible mistake and said, I'm married. Okay, you're, you're stuck forever, and then even forever doesn't measure how long it seems sometimes. Yeah, but a debt, I mean, that's just, you know, that's basically burgers and whatever. Okay, so debt is temporary, and that's why companies, one of the reasons companies like it. Another thing about debt is that the interest is subtracted before you calculate taxes. So in other words, the interest is tax deductible. If your shareholders get a dividend check, well, they're taxed like that's no ordinary income. So, I mean, you get double taxation on your equity and you get taxed if you get a capital gain. So it gives you an idea. Debt is a safer investment. And a lot of companies, that, uh, well, certainly, if you're a corporate official and you've got a massive pension fund that, of money that for your retirees, you sure as hell aren't going to put that at a lot of risk. You're going to try to protect it. And that's why many corporations have in their charter, you may not put money into bonds that are riskier than this. Now, as far as risk goes, real quick, there are three major rating service agencies that give letter designations that describe the risk of the bond. And of course, that drives the interest rate on the bond too, and the yield. I'll talk about that in a minute. But okay, the problem is that these three agencies use different rating systems. They all have A's and B's and C's. But like Standard & Poor's, a triple A would be the highest quality of a corporate bond. 
but that would be three capital letter A's. But you could have Moody's, which is another one, and they have A's, but some of them are capital, some of them are lowercase, there are pluses and minuses. And then the third rating agency, Fitch, its rating system is different from those. They all involve A's, B's, and C's, but the, it drives me crazy because I'll never remember all the different designations. But know this, the A grades are what we call investment grade. Now, if you're a corporate official, you would probably have a charter that said nothing below double A on the standard poor system or something like that. Below that, you get into the B's and the C's. We use the polite term high yield because you get a big coupon or something like that. The dirty term is junk. You don't ever want to say junk bonds in a corporate setting. You just say high yield uh, and leave it at that. Everyone will know what you mean by that. It's junk. But there are investors in junk bonds because if the bond recovers, like a bond that might be $700, if it recovers, uh, you're going to get $1,000 on it. But you know they're, they're high-risk investments. For the most part, investors in bonds want safety. Most of them want fixed income because you're going to get a coupon check every year. Actually, it's every six months, but we work with year for most of, for the most part with this course. So you're going to get a you're going to get a coupon check. That's why an elderly couple or an old let's say an older couple says we're coming. We've got ten million dollars to invest, and as an investment advisor, I would go nowhere near stocks. I just put them into bonds, most probably, simply because it's safer. They get a check. No, they're not going to get a capital gain. The bond isn't going to go sky high. That It's a bond. You're going to get $1,000 when it matures. But that's why we call those uh, fixed income investments, safe investments. Most bonds have betas that are somewhere between 0.10 and 0.40. That was a lot there that just poured at you. You should have quite a few notes from just that. Okay, so now... Take it back to corporate and government bonds. Now, government bonds, they come in different flavors. There are treasuries. Those are bonds issued by the treasury to raise money to pay the bills of the government. There are treasury bonds, treasury notes, treasury bills. We usually use the short term T-bills for the short stuff. But those are backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. So in other words, they are very safe. The only risk premium they would have is a maturity premium if they're longer term. However, the government actually also issues another kind of debt. The agent, some of the agencies of the government can issue their own debt. It's called agency debt or agency paper. Now, interestingly, it is not backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. However, most investors figure that if an agency ever did come close to ever did default, 
the government would step in, the treasury would step in and make it right. So they have a very small default premium just because of that presumption. The government's not going to let agency debt go away. Now, what do I mean by an agency? Well, let me give you an example. Have any of you ever heard of the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA? Uh, there are a lot of these water re and resource authorities around the country. They can raise their own debt, agency debt. Interestingly enough, when you see those figures for the national debt, oftentimes they don't include the agency debt, which can be a lot of money. A lot. It's fluctuated quite a bit over the years, ups and downs in it. But anyway. Okay, now, that's not the only kind of government. you got the Treasury and the agency. There are other government entities that can issue debt. We call those generally, we call those munis, M-U-N-I, short for municipals. The munis, like for example, a state could borrow money, that, that would be called a muni. Cities, townships, and other jurisdictions can issue munis. School districts can issue their own school bonds. Those usually, oftentimes, those are what we call revenue bonds. Because the lenders will say, we'll lend you money for 20 years. You're going to use build schools and stuff like that. However, in order for us to lend you the money, you must raise property taxes for the life of this loan so that that extra is earmarked to pay us. That makes them relatively safe. But it also makes them politically vulnerable. Right here in this area, there was a uh, ballot issue the last time for a school bond issue. And it was defeated. So they're going to try again in a couple of weeks, in April I think it is, again to get the voters to approve this tax property tax increase to uh, under, essentially underwrite the, uh, uh, the uh, bond issue, the bond. That's one kind. The, here's the attraction. Aside from the fact that oftentimes, sometimes they're earmarked and all that. Another attraction is that municipals, the interest that comes to the lenders is tax exempt at the federal level. It's tax exempt. That makes it very attractive to rich people in high tax brackets. That's why the coupons on munis tend to be lower than the coupons on equivalent corporate debt. Because if you get an interest check on a corporate uh, bond, it's taxable. That's interest income. But if it's on a uh, muni, it's exempt. Now for more than a century, probably more than that, municipals were considered very safe. You know, the city's going to pay us. That that sense of security was rattled substantially in, I think it was the 1970s, when Cleveland defaulted on a pretty heavy muni. I mean, it shocked everyone. A city defaulted on a muni? I mean, it rattled the markets pretty hard. 
And so the default premium on munis increased. Well, then there were other defaults after that, Detroit and others, they defaulted. So munis have lost a little of their luster of safety. In fact, there are some states, Illinois is one of them, where you just assume that there's going to be a little premium. Yeah, so, yeah. You, you don't pay it. You miss, a, you miss an interest payment. And I'm going to talk about that. Uh, yeah, don't worry. I'm going to talk a lot about that. That's when it gets exciting is default on a, an interest payment. Corporations can default. Um, obviously, munis can. The only thing that probably would never default is a government, straight-up government debt instrument. But the rest of them, if you don't pay, you can be liquidated. But that was just a problem. When Cleveland defaulted, what do you collect? What do you liquidate? Cleveland? <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's pretty rough. Uh, that was why it was just such a shock to the uh, invest, muni investment community, as it were. Because munis were supposed to be so darn safe, and then they didn't pay. Now, matter of fact, let me get to that right now. What happens if a corporation does not pay an interest payment. Well, right away, the bondholders have the prior claim. So the first thing they're going to do is try to liquidate the company. You didn't pay an interest payment, you're in default. Now the company is going to immediately seek protection in chapter 11, under chapter 11 in bankruptcy court. That means that they're asking a court to order the bondholders to back off. And then there will be a process where the company and the bondholders get together and they try to do a reorg. More time to pay, lower interest rates, something like that. Maybe a little shave off what they owe, that kind of thing. Now, if that's successful, all parties go back to the bankruptcy court and say, we have a reorganization plan. And we will appoint a trustee to oversee it. And we will give the time for it to work. And then if you come back and say it worked, then we will free you from Chapter 11 status and you'll be back in business. If, however, the bondholders don't come to agreement with the defaulting company, then it goes to chapter seven and the company is liquidated and the bondholders get theirs in order of priority of the bondholders. What about the shareholders? They get nothing. They'll come out pretty, almost always they'll come out with nothing. The company will be liquidated. Now, in order to keep that from happening, the original agreement will have a lot of parts to it. When a bond is issued, it's a loan, and a, there will be a loan contract. This is called the indenture agreement. It will have everything in it. The who, what, where, when, 
the name of the company, the name of the lender, the uh, how much interest, the coupon, that's the interest, the coupon is the interest, how long, how much, all of those will be in it. Also interestingly in the covenant, and these are the covenants, the bond agreement will have all of the covenants of the contract. Now within those covenants there are some important features. Well, there are a lot of important. One is, interestingly enough, that there will be a trustee appointed that will oversee the interests of the bondholders. That trustee will have greater or lesser power. But you, madam, have bar are going to borrow money from me. So we get the agreement and I appoint a trustee that oversees your operations. Your interest is in maximizing the welfare of the shareholders, pure and simple. That means that you might want to take on some pretty risky projects. You know, high risk, high return. And I say, oh no you don't, Sparky. No. Well, why not? Because you see, my interest is in keeping that EBIT, operating income, sufficiently above what interest expense there will be at the next line. So I'm going to say, no, I don't want something that's going to have a risk of dropping your uh, revenues and then dropping your EBIT and you getting into default. I don't want that. So I could say no to that. You might say, hey, I want to make my shareholders happy, so I'm going to issue a big dividend. And I'll say, like hell you are, you're going to put that money back into retained earnings and you're going to do nice things with it in your company. You're not going to give away what's mine. Remember, those, that interest expense and all those other uh, things on the income statement above the uh, net profit, those are someone else's, not the shareholders. So that's going to keep, uh, th that's going to be one of those covenants, and there will be a lot of other ones in there, like I said. Now here's an interesting one. You see, attached to the agreement itself, there might be another document called the mortgage agreement. This would mean that you are pledging some asset. I'll lend you the $10 million, but if you default, I take your factory. That makes it my position much more secure. If it is not a mortgage bond, then we call it a debenture. D-E-B-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. Debenture. T-U-R-E. Debenture. That would be an uncollateralized bond. They're obviously riskier than a mortgage bond. So they'll have a higher coupon. Now, in all of this, you've got, oh, by the way, let me point out something. Mortgage, that's why they, oh, well, I got a mortgage on my house. I got a mortgage. No, actually, you got a promissory agreement. There was a mortgage attached that pledges the house as collateral. Your car loan is a mortgage loan, but they don't call it that, but it is. Now, the term mortgage has different names. 
Uh, I remember what, when I, many years ago, I got into, when I got, first got into oil and gas exploration and exploitation in Texas, um, the first time when I was with the operation, we hit oil. Now, no, that doesn't mean gushers of oil. It was slaw, uh, smelly, stinky, sticky, thick, ugly, crude, but... We got it. And so the vice president of the company and I were uh, in the office together when we got the report that we had hit. And uh, he said, well, first things first, we've got to get uh, everything done on the ETC. And he looked at me and he said, you want to do that? And I said, sure. I had no idea what he was talking about. Oh, and back then we didn't have the internet, so I was scrambling to figure out what it was. And ETC is a loan, an equipment trust certificate it is, equipment trust certificate, is a loan collateralized by the equipment you're going to use to get the oil out of the ground. You know, the pump jack, the reserve tanks, the pipes, all the machinery and all that. So that's a mortgage loan. That's a mortgage loan. And they didn't call it that. Had nothing, not even a hint of that word in it, but it was a collateralized debt obligation, a mortgage. Relatively short term, I should point out, but uh, yeah, so do know when you get into the corporate world, you'll hear terminology and sometimes you have to think, what did I learn in school that is this, but they're using a specialized term for it. And there are specialized terms for these collateralized loan agreements in every industry, it seems like. They just don't call them mortgage loans very often. That's just a generic term. But anyway, that, there's that. Now, priority. You, madam, come to me and you say, I should like to borrow $100 million. And we do all the research and get the credit rating and figure out a coupon to pay and how long it is, and we're all good with that. So that's the first time you've ever borrowed money, $100 million. We would call that senior debt. It would come first if there were ever a liquidation. But now you come back uh, five years later and you say, well, I should like to borrow 50 million more dollars. If we make the agreement, that would be senior subordinated. That. It would come next in line if there were a liquidation. And then you come back later and you say, I should like to borrow $25 million. Well, that would be junior. And then a while later you say, I should like to borrow $10 million more. Well, that would be junior subordinated. Now this is, understand that I, these are more or less just framework terms, sort of like the general categories. I was looking at the bonds of a company 
last year it was, so I could show some quotes and all that, and I'll say something about that in a minute. But I was looking for quotes, and I, I think it was like CVS or one of those like that. And I swear they had like 10 different bond issues listed. And I think, the hell? They were all fell somewhere in this broad categorization, but they have really detailed names, and of course then they have detailed payout uh, levels in uh, if there were ever a liquidation. It just it drove me crazy. I thought, what is the difference between these? I could tell which ones had the priority, how it worked, because I could see the yields, the coupons on them. You know, if I the higher the coupon, then probably that would be lower on this food chain. That that was sort of my only indication of what they would actually be called. Well, well what's this? Is this a junior bond, a junior subordinator? What is it? But th that so you, you got to know that this is just sort of like a general template for the details, and every corporation seems to have be hell bent on having its own names for those in there. Mm. But that's sort of the layout of the whole thing. Now, in a liquidation, if, the, God forbid, there's a liquidation of a company, the mortgage bonds sort of jump everyone because that mortgage bond holder says, that's mine, liquidate it and give me the money. And then you would get into this hierarchy here, but it's a little more complicated than that. Because you've got all kinds of debt holders. For one thing, the first entity that is paid off in a liquidation is the bond trustee. Uh, that, that's the first one. But then after that, it gets complicated. These guys get paid in order right there. That, but there are other ones that show up too in the list. Well, what about the suppliers? What about the wages and salaries of the workers? Where do those fit in? And that can get there. I think the book or at least some websites say this is the order they're paid. That's not true. The bankruptcy court will decide that. There was a, I consider it an outrageous example, maybe 10, 15 years ago. There was a company that did custom furniture, high-end stuff. And they had a lot of orders and they were all, all these orders that had already been paid for by the customers were in a warehouse. The company failed on, the, uh, uh, on an interest payment, and so immediately it went Chapter 11. Chapter 11 never worked out, and so it went to Chapter 7. The, there was an attorney, one attorney representing all of these customers saying, you know, send us our send send our my clients their their furniture for God's sake, and the bankruptcy court said no. It gets liquidated, and it gets just gets part of the pile that goes in the hierarchy, which was just seemed strike struck me as just outrageous. But I mean that was the way it was. So you really don't know how a bankruptcy court is going to play it some sometimes. So just know that that it can there can be a risk. Uh, uh, if you if the company owes you money or something, that you might not get anything by the time all the big dogs had gotten what they their money out of the liquidation. 
<sighs> Unfortunately. Okay, let me get off this more detailed, and I'm going to take it back to a little bit broader. When I say bonds, there are quite a few different flavors, aside from this whole thing. You've got your government bonds, okay? You've got your agency within the government bonds, but you've got corporate bonds and all these lists in here. But it gets even more interesting or complicated. One thing, and this is something I'm, I've just, I've been talking about off and on, going through some of my lectures on this in my international finance course, you've got something called foreign bonds. Now, a foreign bond would be a, a bond, let's say, issued in the United States, but it pays its coupons and its face value in some other currency. That'd be a foreign bond. So, for example, you have a company, let's say you've got a domestic company, a multinational, and it wants to do something, build something in Europe. It might issue a foreign bond because it will pay its coupons. It's, it's sold in Europe. It pays its coupons and its face value in euros. That would be a foreign bond because it's, it's paying in another currency. As a matter of fact, in, uh, in the summers I teach in Central America, Panama, just a few years ago, issued a bond that, what was it, like $1.2 billion. Dollars. Panama's currency is the Balboa. So it was issuing in dollars, so that means that the government was issuing, the government of the Republic of Panama was issuing a foreign bond because it was denominated in another currency other than the domestic currency. And these happen all the time. I mean, there are bonds that come to the United States that from Japan, they pay in yen or something like that, or they pay in some other currency. So foreign bonds are out there. And the, the thing is that, yeah, they're fun and they're kind of what you would want to do in some situations, but you're also, if you're a domestic person or corporation or whatever, you're going to be facing exchange rate risk as the foreign currency moves its, against the dollar. What you actually make in dollars is going to move with that exchange rate volatility. Uh, as, some, as some people, as some companies and people who lent money to Russia have found out recently. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, so there are foreign bonds. Now there are other kinds of bonds out there too. There are even commodity bonds, bonds that pay the coupon and the face in a commodity. The, a famous metal bond called the gold bond. It paid its interest and its principal, the, the face value, in gold. Now here's what happened. World War II was just ungodly brutal on Europe. Of course, Japan, uh, yo, we got nukes dropped on us. But Europe was just level. I mean, it was rubble. 
if you ever, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Museum Men, but it was a true story and it gave some really good visual cinematography of just the aftermath of the bombing of Europe. We were bombing Europe, the Russians were, the, the uh, Nazis were, the Italians, everyone was bombing everything in sight and it was rubble. After the war, there, it, the problem was that we couldn't just leave Europe like that because if we didn't do something, then sure as hell the Soviets were and then they would bring all of those countries into the Soviet bloc. And so we had to show that we could do the job. We did something called the Marshall Plan where we poured money into rebuilding Europe. It was magnificently successful, as you can see. But here's the thing, we needed money to do that, an ungodly amount. So what the US government did was this. It issued bonds that paid in gold from our gold reserves. Just paid, and so of course, they, those bonds were as good as gold, as it were, and so they were just snatched up, the whole issues were subscribed, and we got the money and we rebuilt Europe, and that's what we see to this day. There was one little problem with this, though. The uh, buyers of those bonds, the lenders, a huge number of them, of those bonds, ended up being bought, the government of the United States was lent the money, by Europeans. Giant ancient families, trusts, and all of that in Europe were the ones who lent us the money to rebuild their countries. And so when the bonds came due, we paid in gold, and so that means that we exported and gave to those Europeans our gold. We nearly wiped out, not even in a facetious way, we nearly wiped out Fort Knox. We just gave them the gold, so now all that gold's over there. So that's how it worked. So yeah, gold bonds are out there. There are even other kinds of weird bonds out there. So bonds don't always pay in dollars. They can pay in foreign currencies, they can pay in gold, they can pay in commodities. So there are all kinds of ways to arrange, set up arrangements. So bonds have all kinds of different flavors and all of that. Now, here's the thing. The math of bonds, like I said, used to be ungodly. I mean, I literally dreaded going into the classes uh, to do the math of, uh, of bonds. There are these parameters th that define a bond in terms of its financial value. The first one, well, I, I, I've already mentioned these, hinted at them, and now I'll show them to you. But know this, no matter how tedious it looks, it was worse back in the day. But I will tell you again, and I'll say this without any qualms whatsoever, the calculator is actually, the financial calculator apps are actually easier to get a command of in this than Excel. Excel wants things in very specific ways, functions within functions, and it can drive you mad. I do have a template 
to do this. And it's in uh, your resources tab in VeggieNet now. So you can take, bring that to a quiz or an exam with you and save yourself a lot of pain. But before I get to that, the parameters that define a bond. The first one is the face value. Now we always work in increments of 1,000. So if you see face value, FV, future value, face value, that will be a thousand. However, there is a customary different thing to say. You quote on the hundred. The price is on the thousand, the quote will be on the hundred. So the quote will be a tenth of the price. You can put in a thousand, probably should, in your calculator. Excel will pee itself if you put in a thousand instead of a hundred. I'll tell you what this means. Prices are really against a thousand. So a bond that is $1,045, you'll pay $1,045 for it but it will be quoted on the hundred. So that bond that is $1,045, the quote would be 104.50. That would be the quote on it. A bond at $985, it will quote at 98.50. A story from my own life. I knew a very wealthy fellow back in the late 80s. And he thought he was an investment genius. He was rich. He had computers at the time that hardly anyone even knew could do things with analyzing stocks and all that kind of stuff. And one day he just decided he was going to buy 10 bonds. And he he calls me the next day just cussing and swearing. I got a bill and you can't believe what they did to me. I bought these bonds at something like 98 or, and they wanted, they're, they're took, they took $9,800 out of my account. The ripoff, is, I'm gonna report them to the, Frank, what did you actually do? What, was the, what were you told? $98, uh, $99, it was something like that. Frank, you were given a quote. Now, I was trying to be diplomatic. I wanted to say, Frank, you dumbass. You, that was a quote, that was the price. The price is 10 times that. And I explained to him, he said, who the hell ever invented that? That's some new age thing. I'm God, he was saying horrible. I mean, the words I'd never heard. I mean, I was in the military and I didn't know so many words that began with mother. Uh, but here, he said, when did this happen? I said, in the 1700s. What? Right, yes. You see, here's how it worked. Back in the early days of the country in the stock markets, every morning on Wall Street, before the opening bell, the big printing houses on the street, they would print these what were called broadsheets that were had all the stock quotes at the close of the day yet the day before, bond prices. And to make it so that they could make the columns really thin, they used shorthand. 
Bonds would be a tenth of their actual price. Stocks were a real fun thing back in the day because they used to be quoted in fractions. So a stock that is 98.50 would be quoted at 98 and a half. And so the it would be written, it would be on the broadsheet as 98 with a little tick one. You had to just know that these were fractions. And you had to know what fraction, because it could be a half, it could be halves, quarters, eighths, sixteenths, which we call teenths. I mean, it drove, it, it, back in the day, if, when you were first learning this system, it just drove you crazy. But anyway, so no, if it's got a dollar sign, it's, uh, it's probably, and it looks like it's around $1,000. Well, yeah, that's probably the price that you're going to put into the calculator. But if it's on the 100, you're going to see that it's a number around 100, not 1,000. That's just the way, that's just the convention. Like I said, in TI-83 Plus or in any other financial calculator, you can put it in a thousand. The put price, the face at a thousand, you can put the price in on the thousand. But in Excel, I just tried it before class today to see if I could put in a th the thousands instead of the quotes. I got it, it, I got errors. It does not want the price. Gee, how uh, that makes sense. Let's not do, do things the way you'd actually pay. But anyway, there you are. Uh, so just know that there is that difference. I will, for my test, always use the dollar values. And you give me back the dollar values. Okay? But do appreciate that quotes are almost always going to be um, on the hundred. Almost always. So no, you're not getting at the, bar the bargain of the century, as good old Frank did. Anyway, that's the face value. Now there are the other parameters. One thing is maturity. That is when it's over. The bond is paid off. So I could give you IBM 5.25%-2035. That would mean that that is the year that it matures. Now for the purposes of this class, we assume that it's, that's going to be exactly 12 years from now. You get into the fractions of years, it gets to be, even Excel gets really, has a hard time with this. But I, I mean, if you're dying to know, I can show you or you can take our fixed income class. But anyway, okay. So now, maturity. There is another term. I just said 12. The term is 12 years. In other words, how much life does this bond have left? <laughs> well, sorry. <laughs> You're trying to be good at that, that. I was at a graduation and my phone goes off. It was worse than that because 
apparently the person that I knew at the time decided to put a very unfortunate ringtone on the phone right there in the ceremony. I don't know if anyone really appreciated how humiliated I was by the groans and moans the phone was making. But term, how long it has left. That's what matters to us. That's what will go into the Excel or the calculator. That, well, that's what you'll put in the calculator, is how long it has left. Be careful about this, okay? Take 35 minus 23. Don't try to count the years, for God's sake. You'll get it wrong like I do every time if you try to do it that way. Okay, so now the next thing, the coupon. This is the interest rate. Now, in a calculator, this is a dollar amount. It's based upon the thousand right here. So in other words, I know right now that every year I'm going to get 0 0.0525 times a thousand or $52.50 every year. That's the number that you put into the calculator, is the dollar value. And I'm emphasizing that because there's another one that's a percent that is a percent. But the coupon is actually, think about it this way, a coupon. You go out to your mailbox, you're, you, you're an old, old, decrepit, reclusive hermit, but you've got lots of investment dollars. <laughs> Open up the mail, ah, oh, there's my goddamn check. Open up. Oh, wow, I got 5.25%. What am I going to do with that? No, you want a dollar amount, okay? I mean, you've got bills to pay. You've got your diabetes to take care of. You've got your, uh, your cholesterol drug to take care of. You've got your cats to feed. So that when you die, they won't eat you right away. They'll wait a day or two to eat you. Okay, so remember that the coupon, when you see that PMT, and I'm going to show you one here in a minute, you put in, you put in 0.0525 times 1,000. Don't try to calculate it yourself. Don't be like me and make a fool of yourself. Just put in 0.0525 times 1,000 in the PMT line. Okay, so now, the last, uh, another one here. Face my, oh, okay, yield. Now, on your calculator, that will be the I percent. Excel calls this the required rate, which is weird because everyone else calls it the yield. This is what the market says it should be paying. You see, the coupon is set at the beginning, and it will be that. The yield is what the market says it should be. So, you, sir, you are paying me 5.25%. And I'm going to get that for the next 30 years, okay? What if some years later, Coupon bonds like this one are paying 7%. Well, you're, I, you don't have to pay me anymore. So what I'm going to probably do is say FTS. 
fancy that scenario. I'm not going to take that. I'm going to sell that bond, which is going to drop the price of the bond. That's the, that's the inverse relationship between yield and price. You see, because what's going to happen is that whenever bondholders sell their bonds to get rid of them because the coupon's too low, that causes the price to go down, which for, makes the yield go up for the next person who buys it because they got the bond at a lower price. Similarly, suppose that I've got a bond that I'm issuing at 6%. Now suppose that interest rates for bonds like that sink down to 4%. Well, everyone and his mother is going to want to buy my bond because it's paying more than that, drive the price up, which will drive the market yield on it down to what the market says it should be. You'll see this relationship. It's actually kind of cool. It's just pure math. It's not speculation. It's not anyone's opinion or anything like that. But this is sort of the framework. Now, and then finally, as I had mentioned, the price. You will know either the price and you'll find the yield, or you'll know the yield and you'll find the price. So let's do a, let, let me do an IBM 5.35% 2035. Now suppose it's a market, the required rate, what the market says this should be paying is 5.5%. Watch. Don't have to know, understand this the first time. The best way, though, is to show you this just on the stupid calculator. You know, on the calculator, say, who's the one who gets numbers in, uh, enters numbers in here wrong? Who's the stupid one? Okay, granted, I do. TVM solver, that old TVM solver. Now, watch what I'm going to do. The N is the term of the loan, the term. In this case, you can do, I mean, you'll see me sometimes do 20, 23 minus, uh, whoops, no, 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 I want to do 20, 35 minus 20, 23. Did I do a 6? Yes, I did. And then you go down. 12 years. The pain in the butt is in Excel. It doesn't want you to give it to term. It wants you to do the day you buy it on one, in one slot, and then in the next slot, the day it matures. And oh my God, because you have to use the date function to do it. But here, okay, now the yield on this. That's the required rate. The yield is five, the market says you should be paying me 5.5%. Now remember in Excel, all, or in the calculator, all you have to do is put in the number. No percent or decimal or anything like that, for God's sake. Now, the price value, leave it alone. Where that's what we're going to find is the price. The payment, well, the coupon is 0 0.0535 times 1,000. See, that's, you just times it. That's all you do is the coupon is a decimal times a thousand. 
the coupon as a decimal times a thousand. That's all you do. And don't try to calculate it yourself. Just let the stupid calculator do it. Now, the face value, a thousand bucks. Whoops. Now, down there at the bottom, these are ordinary annuities. Make sure that that toggle there at the bottom is on end. Now, just go back up and see the price. Now, let's talk here before I do that price. Do you see that the market says this bond should pay 5.5%, but it's paying only 5.35%? That's a paddling. The market's not going to like that. So what it's going to do is make that price go to a discount to par. Let's see if it actually, if I'm right. Alpha solve on the PV. Well, shit fire when you eat matches. $987. It is selling at a discount to par. You've never heard that one? That's an old one back from my time. Yeah. Yeah, at my Catholic school, the head mistress heard us say that one time. God, that hurt. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, see, it's selling at a discount to par. Well, what happens, let's try it again. Suppose that the market says, ah, you're paying way too much. That 5.5% coupon, that 5.35% uh, that coupon, you should be paying only about 5.10%. Well, let's see what happens now. The bond is paying a coupon that is better than the market says it needs to. So let's go back up there and change that 5.5 to a 5.1. And let's see what the price does. Alpha solve. Well, I'll be darned. Look at that. It's selling at a premium to par because the, the coupon is better than the required rate of the market. And that is that, you hear me every day. Well, the bond prices are going down, bond yields are going down, so the bond prices are going up. That's what I'm talking about. This is exactly that. This is that principle of finance. And it's not magic, it's not an opinion, it's just the mathematics of it that does that trick. Yields and prices are inversely related. Let me repeat that. Yields and prices are inversely related. And one more time, just to convince you that I probably will ask this on a quiz or an exam, yields and prices are inversely related. They go up in lockstep against each other. So in other words, as the Fed is driving up interest rates, all other things being held constant, the yields, uh, the prices are going to fall on bonds. That's enough. That's all I have for you today. I thank you all.